Turn to Mark 12, 13 to 17. Rendering things to whom they are due. We return to this series of epic showdowns between Jesus and the and the Sanhedrin. We, in these multiple confrontations, we are seeing the various tendrils of the Pharisees and the chief priests and, and various subgroups uh, attacking the Lord Jesus by means of loaded questions and subtle accusations. And they are proving themselves to be like the Greek hydra, the multi-headed serpent, where if you... Uh, uh, chop off its head, two more rise up in its place. And uh, just confrontation after confrontation after confrontation, like a Facebook thread. I'm sure more than once this day, the Lord Jesus took a very deep sigh. The Sanhedrin feels they must act because they fear that they are about to lose everything. Jesus Christ, the would-be king of Israel, the would-be son of David, to them is an usurper. He has come upon their hill, to their fort, to their house, and he is challenging their system. And so they have laid, in this day, trap after trap after trap after trap. And today we get something of a surprise because this trap is presented Uh, by an alliance of uh, men that you just would not think would come together. But uh, as one American poet says, politics makes strange bedfellows. The um, division of the text will be into three parts. The scheme will be set up in verses 13 to the first half of 14. And then the snare of the trap will be laid Uh, going from the middle of 14 to the middle of 15, and then the surprising answer from the middle of 15 all the way through verse 17. The scheme, the snare, and the surprising answer. Mark writes, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, We know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. But teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, and I'm sure there was a sigh at this point, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Let's look first at the scheme as it is set up. 
verse 13. Verse 13 begins with then. And this tells us, this little four-letter word tells us that the context, that the setting hasn't changed from the previous setting. And uh, there's been several then, thens and theirs and thems, which ultimately points back to 1127, where the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to confront Jesus as he is uh, after the day after he has cleansed the temple and now he is walking around and he is teaching it is think about it God's temple for one part of one day and ever since chapter 11 verse 27 they have been challenging him they have been questioning him and the context the setting has not changed this is now one more question one more challenge no sooner has the previous challenge been uh, dealt with and, they, and one group has left than then another group comes onto the scene. And it says, they, speaking of the, of the uh, Sanhedrin as a collective, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now these two groups could not be more diametrically opposed. They they are as far away in their belief and in their makeup and in their values. They are as far away as they could be. And uh, that, that poet that I referred to earlier, earlier was Charles Dudley Warner. He said, politics makes strange bedfellows. The, the kinds of people that will come together in unity over political reasons is incredible. Who, who were they? And what do they believe? The Pharisees, as we've seen before, these are the extremely religious men of Israel. Their name, the, the, the group of the Pharisees, literally means the set-apart ones or the pious ones. They are the separatists. The Herodians are not extremely religious. They are extremely political. As their name uh, is derived from the puppet king that Caesar has planted in Israel, Herod. These are those of Herod. And just for your information, Herod was not a Jew. He was not a Jewish king. He was an Idumean king. He was a descendant of Esau, not of Jacob, whose name became Israel. The Pharisees were proponents of God's law. God has spoken through Moses. Hear what Moses says. The Herodians were proponents of Rome's law. Caesar speaks through Herod. Listen to what Herod says. The Pharisees valued the respect of men and they did everything they could to appear respectful and pious. The Herodians respected the, the power of money and affluence. The Pharisees were the ultra-right-wing conservatives the Herodians were the ultra-left-wing liberals. The Pharisees were, were purists. They were pietists. The uh, Herodians were syncretistic. The Pharisees asked, how narrow can we get? How, how removed can we get from the world? How much more can we separate ourselves from the world? The Herodians asked, how much more of the world can we ally with? How much more of the world can we be friends with and rally beside and gather alongside. 
the Pharisees were nationalistic and pro-Israel. Israel stands alone. Everyone is subservient to Israel. The Herodians sold their souls to Rome. Ironically, they, the Herodians were Jews, but they sold their souls to Rome because uh, it gave them an advantage over their fellow Jews. They, the Herodians were like uh, uh, the kids in the neighborhood who would sell out their friends and family to the mafia or in, in classroom, your friends who used to be your friends, but now they're the bullies' friends because that gives them an edge. That's the Herodians. These two groups hated each other and they would never agree on anything but there is one thing they agree with and could unite on and it's that they agreed that jesus is a threat that has to be dealt with because jesus has been an affront he is a threat he is a challenge to both of them and we've seen jesus hound the pharisees for a long time he's exposed on many occasions that the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis are fraudulent teachers who do not handle the word of God accurately. They are frauds. They are not worthy of respect. They are not worthy of being admired and esteemed and followed. They are not teachers of God's law. So the Pharisees see him as a threat. The Herodians also see him as a threat because they, being Jews who have thrown in their lot with Caesar and thereby Herod, don't like it when somebody else is walking around into town like he's the king. Because Herod is the king, and Caesar is king. So they both see that he's a threat and needs to be dealt with. What has this alliance of strange bedfellows come together for? Look in verse 13, Mark tells us, they are sent to him in order to trap him in a statement. That word trap, the only, I believe this is the only place in the New Testament this word is used. It was used to describe a hunter laying a snare or a trap trying to catch a wild animal. They are not coming out and confronting him head on with integrity and with honesty. They are laying a carefully crafted and devised trap for Jesus. Luke 20:20 20, 20 says that they being the Sanhedrin watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. That's why the Herodians are there. Matthew 22:16 says they being the the Pharisees sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Mark just calls them uh, Pharisees. Matthew explains these are actually the disciples of the Pharisees. And, 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 And with that in mind, the scheme is this. These are not the Pharisees who have been confronting Jesus in the presence of the crowd all day. These are not the Pharisees who have come out to him in Perea and who have come out to him in Galilee before. These are... Uh, who would be recognized by the people. These are the disciples of the Pharisees who the crowd has never seen before. And they come with the Herodians who likewise have not had a very public appearance in the Gospels. The Sanhedrin have been trying to discredit him before the masses. They have been publicly antagonizing him. 
And their plan of attack time and time and time again has been thwarted, and now they're on the defensive, and they are in a war of attrition that they cannot afford to keep losing. And so they fall back, they publicly withdraw, and they are sending this uh, alliance of men who they think, they suppose, Jesus hasn't seen them before. Jesus doesn't know who they are. The crowd's not going to recognize them as being sent from the Pharisees. These are sincere, genuine speakers of truth. They're not hostile to Jesus. And they, they approach him with this legitimate question that they just, they've been going back and forth. They don't know what the, what the law says about this matter. And Jesus is the teacher of the law. He's the teacher of truth. He's the teacher sent from God. And so surely they could bring this to Jesus and Jesus could solve their problem. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you see the trap that's being laid? And you can see it. You can see it clearly in the flattery that they, that they uh, say to him. And there's six components of their flattery in verse 14. First, they, they address him as teacher. Teacher. They, they are pretending, they are feigning under pretense to be not his accusers. They're not out here to get Jesus. They, they want to learn from Jesus. They, they need Jesus' help. They're friendly. They're not, they're not hostile. Teacher, we know that you say the truth. We know. And, and this, this distanced themselves from what the Sanhedrins, those gutless wonders, had to admit when they said, we do not know in response to Jesus' question. So, so this group who's been sent by the Pharisees, they are trying to, uh, by appearance, distance themselves where the, the Pharisees or the, the Sanhedrin had to say, we don't know. They're, they're like, oh, we know that you speak the truth. We know that you're legit, Jesus. We're not like those Sanhedrin that, that are challenging, to, challenging you. And they, wanna, they, they have to distance themselves from, from that because they need to appear as one of the crowd. They need to be camouflaged. And so they are echoing uh, uh, under pretense what everybody is already believing and what everybody's already saying about Jesus. So they, they need to blend in with the crowd and, and go with the flow, but they also say this so that they can get Jesus to lower his guard. They're not hostile. They just need his help. Third, they say you are, we know that you are truthful. You are truthful. You speak the truth. You say what is right. You say what is good. You say what is correct. And in Luke's translation, he uses the word, you speak orthotically, meaning, and those of you who have had braces or dentures before, what do, what do orthodontists do? They help set your teeth straight. They help set your teeth the way they should be. Jesus, you speak straightly. You say what needs to be said, and what you say is not wrong. What you say can't be argued with. Because it's the truth. It's right. Fourth, you defer to no one. You don't speak with certain interest towards this guy or towards this gal. You aren't swayed by what's politically 
accurate, what's politically correct. You don't, you don't stop what you're saying and, and see which way the wind is blowing before you finish your, your statement. You don't stop and determine, how is this going to come back? How, how could this be used against me later on? Maybe I shouldn't say that. You don't equivocate. You don't give up the moral high ground. Fifth, you are not partial to any. And literally, it, it, it says in the Greek, you don't look at the face. Meaning, you don't show special interest. You don't show favoritism. You don't... You don't stop what you're saying or change when you're saying when a certain somebody walks in the room. You remember, remember, uh, uh, I remember I used to work in a classroom um, and uh, me and my coworkers, the, the fellow aides would be talking a certain way and, um, and then when the teacher would come in, oh, we, we can't talk like that anymore. We can't talk about that student. We can't talk about that person or so on and so forth. You don't say one thing for one guy and then say something else for another. And this is the this is the idea of why Lady Justice is supposed to be blindfolded. She's not supposed to be looking at the person that justice is being rendered out to. You aren't partial to any. Sixth, you teach the way of God in truth. You, sir, tell it like it is. You say the truth no matter the circumstances because you don't speak for men, you speak for God. And because you speak for God, sir, good teacher, you are uniquely qualified to handle this legitimate, sincere, genuine problem we have. So do you see the trap? Do you see how, how they're setting Jesus up? They have, they have set Jesus up on this incredibly high pedestal. They have placed him on this grand platform. He is the great speaker, the great teacher, uh, the great dispenser of divine truth sent from God, who can answer absolutely any question. And they think that they have denied him the right or the ability to, to, to give a non-answer. They, they think they have, den- they have denied him from not answering. And so now all eyes, all ears are on him when they place this snare wrapped in a beautiful uh, wrapping of a legitimate, sincere, genuine question, innocent question placed before him that's the scheme now here's the snare middle of verse 14 it's the look at the last line after all that coding of praise and flattery here here's the actual question is it lawful to pay a poll tax to caesar or not they and they think that they have limited him to two answers. They provide him two answers thinking he must answer A or B. And they, and they, they repeat it. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Going into verse 15. Shall we, is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar? The poll tax refers to the Roman census tax that has been imposed on the people of Israel for the last 30 to 35 years. And it's a tax that's not based upon how much land you have. It's not based upon how much money you have or how, much, uh, uh, or how big your business in is. It's a tax that's based on whether or not you are a breathing person. That pretty much covers the field, doesn't it? It's a tax. It's a tribute that was exacted for breathing Caesar's air and for walking on Caesar's dirt. 
Wonderful reason to pay a tax, isn't it? It's for the privilege of being uh, a part, a part of the thriving Roman Empire. Every year, uh, a man would pay, that the head of the family would pay this annual tax of one denarius. Now, the denarius is not an exorbitant figure. It was one day's wage for the, for the average worker uh, or for the, for the soldier. And it went straight into the royal treasury. It went straight to Caesar's pocket. And this tax had become particularly loathsome to the Jews because, as I said earlier, it's not ex- uh, exorbitant, it's not excessively costly, but it was a reminder, first and foremost, it's a reminder that they are not a free people. Every time they paid it, they were reminded like a, like a pebble that is lodged into your shoe that you can't stop to untie Every time they paid that, that, uh, that tribute, it was, a rem- it was a constant irritant. It was a reminder, a painful, irritating, annoying reminder. They are owned by somebody. They are subject to somebody that they don't want to be subject to. This bred great resentment in the Jews. This, this resentment would ev- eventually uh, um, fester into the rebellion of the late 60s A.D. that would result in Rome destroying Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But that's, that's, that's down the road. So it was a reminder that they were not a free people. So they hated it. They also hated it. Uh, Eric, can, can you put the picture up? It was also, they also hated it because it was practically idolatry. This is the picture of a denarius. And in Latin, this is kind of fuzzy, but this is T-I for Tiberius, C-A-E-S-A-R, Caesar, Divi, D-I-V-I, Tiberius Caesar, divine, Augustus, A-U-G, F stands for son, and then here's Augustus again. So Tiberius Caesar, divine Augustus, son of Augustus. He is the son, he is a divine son of the divine God, Augustus. Tantamount to idolatry. Now the other side, you see on the right, yeah, what does that say? Pontifex Max, Maxim or Maximus, highest priest, greatest priest priest. The Roman emperors saw themselves, for, for those of you who went through our church history series, you remember that the, the Roman emperors saw themselves as the great high priest of the Roman pantheon. And to be forced to give tribute to a man who not only himself claims to be a god, but is, but is a priest to pagan polytheistic gods, that, that, is, that is not something the Jews decide they want to do. It's idolatrous. So this question places Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Eric, you can go back. This question poses Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. So they think. Now the answer everybody expects him to say would be what? Go ahead and pay or not pay? What? 
Yeah, that's the, nobody is expecting him to say, go ahead and pay it. That would be, that would be clearly idolatrous. Everyone's expecting him to say, no, it's not lawful. But if he says, no, it's not lawful, you now have a publicly verified account of treason and mutiny and rebellion against Caesar. Oh, and yeah, yeah, I wonder what that's, maybe that's why the Herodians were there. You know, those guys who have a hotline to Caesar's palace. I'm not talking about the casino either. Jesus, uh, before you could say bar mitzvah, Jesus would be labeled a rebel and a zealot, and he would be charged with insurrection. And let me remind you what Luke said in his account, Luke 20, 20. The whole reason that, they, that this was set up was so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. And you can bet that Herod, or that Pilate, is not going to do, is not going to allow anything that would jeopardize or threaten Caesar, because that would come back on him. You can remember that the, that the Pharisees have tried to trap Jesus before. Remember when they asked him whether it was lawful to divorce in Herod's backyard? Well, now they're trying to ask him the, the same kind of question by asking him about the lawfulness of paying taxes to Caesar when not only Herod, but when Herod and Pilate are in town. Now, the Romans responded to religious problems with a sigh. They could care less. And you can see that when, when uh, Paul is brought before uh, a Roman preconsul in Acts 18. They could care, they couldn't care less about religious problems, but they did care about political problems, and they responded to political problems promptly with steel. And if Jesus says, don't pay the tax because I'm king and Caesar's not king, again, all those Herodians are going to make a beeline for Herod or Pilate or Caesar. If there's any implication of rebellion, Jesus can be charged, arrested, and he'll be executed by the Romans, not by the Jews. So, like, what was it, Lady Macbeth, thinking her hands are clean. That's if he says no, but what if he says, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead and pay the tax. It is lawful to pay the tax. If he says that, which no one's expecting he would say, he's going to shatter everybody's messianic expectations of him. What is everybody anticipating Jesus is on the verge of doing? What? Yeah, freeing the people, setting up shop, setting up his administration. Remember what Daniel 7.14, the passage about the Son of Man says, that uh, Daniel 7.14, to him, to the Son of Man, to the Messiah, the Christ, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Herod is in there. And Caesar is in there. And the Romans are in there. Everybody's expecting Jesus to kick them out and set up shop and reverse the roles where Israel is no longer subservient to Rome and Caesar. Rome and Caesar will be subservient to them. That's what everybody's expecting. By the end, by the end of the day, maybe the next day, Herod would be kicked or Pilate would be kicked out. By the end of the week, Herod would be kicked out of Galilee. Israel would again become politically independent. 
And not if, but when Caesar's army comes knocking, like King David of old, Jesus is going is to send his armies packing. And Caesar and Rome and the whole world would be put into subservience to the Jews. That's what everybody's expecting. Everybody's expecting. So they think Caesar's time of taking their money, whether it's one day's wage or a, or a week or a month or a year, Caesar's time of taking their money is over. He doesn't own them anymore. He has no right to expect anything from them anymore. In fact, very soon, so everybody thinks Caesar is going to owe Israel and they will expect tribute from him. Isn't it, wouldn't it be nice if the government actually paid taxes to us? So why, if that's what is going to happen, why would we pay tribute to them? Why, why would the Jews, why would Jesus say, yeah, go ahead and pay the tribute, pay the tax, pay the poll? So what, what, what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to discredit himself and incur the wrath of the people for being a fraud? Or is he going to incur the wrath of Caesar? For being a king he didn't appoint and for, being, and for denying money that he thinks is rightfully his. What's he going to do? Incur the wrath of the people or incur the wrath of Caesar? We get to the surprising answer and as we continue in verse 15. And church, I'm so glad Jesus is not like us. I'm glad Jesus is not like me because I can be outwitted. I can be outsmarted, outmaneuvered, outplayed. I can be outplanned. I can be outresourced. And I can certainly be outclassed. It doesn't take very long for me to feel like I am way in over my head. And to regret ever getting into this conversation, into this confrontation, into this Facebook thread, into this meeting, whatever. Jesus is not like us because even though this scheme has been meticulously planned and carefully executed, this trap has been set up, the snare has been laid, everybody remembered their lines. They practiced their lines. Everybody said their lines exactly as they said. I mean, maybe one person was even crying uh, uh, tears of joy just to really sell it, you know. Everybody did exactly what was supposed to be done. And it seems as though they had him. And then we get this marvelous contrastive conjunction. And everyone is wondering, what is that? Contrastive conjunction. That's a, a conjunction is a word that joins two things. And a contrast is, is a, a, a opposing or showing the difference. And so the but is the contrastive conjunction. And they are wonderful words. You were dead in the trespasses of your sins, but God made you alive. I was hungry, but now I'm fed. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I'm, I see. Contrastive conjunctions can be great. And they think Jesus is caught, but he, knowing their hypocrisy, they thought they had devised this clever trap. They think that they're so smart. They thought it was so well-concealed and so well-baited with flattery that he never 
that he would never see it coming and he'd walk right into it and it would be too late once it was sprung. And he has to answer one or two, A or B, one or the other. And no matter what he says will be a devastating loss. He won't be a threat to us anymore because he'll be dealt with. But he knew their hypocrisy. Luke says, and and the different gospel writers, they they, they reach into the thesaurus. They use different words to, to convey the same thing. Luke says, he detected their trickery. Matthew says he perceived their malice. That that veneer of nice words did not fool him one second. Because Jesus can read them plain as day. I'm thankful that that's our Lord and Savior. He can read them as plain as day because these men... And indeed, all men and all women and all children and you and me, we are all open books before the divine eyes of Jesus Christ. John 2.23, John writes that many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men. And he didn't need anybody to testify to him what was in man. Meaning, he doesn't need somebody to come along and explain or interpret or tell Jesus what this guy or what that gal or what this person is going to do. Because Jesus already knew what is in that person. He, He himself, he didn't need the Father to reveal it to him. John says he himself knew what was in man. Beloved, that that realization is either going to be a comfort to you or it'll be a terror to know that that Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. All people are open books before the Lord. And I'm not talking about Greek books. I'm not talking about electrical schematic books. I'm talking about Ikea instruction instruction pamphlets. I'm talking about C-spot run. He knows the intentions of our hearts. He knows the truth about who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what you're doing now, even when you think nobody's looking, and what, what, what you will do before you even know what you're going to do. He knows you. He knows you. He knows what's in you, and he knows you. And you say, well, how can he know that? He's, just, he's a man. Well, he is a man, but he's also God, so there's that too. So for all their craftiness, and for all their wicked pretension, these, these, these men, these, these, these experts, these spies, these covert schemers, from our point of view, you know, they think they're so smart. They think that they're so crafty. But looking at this text, they, they're like small children thinking that they have, they're hiding in the middle of the room playing hide-and-seek with dad. And they're covering their eyes, thinking that because they've covered their eyes and they can't see dad, then dad must not see them, even though they're standing right in the middle of the room. And they're wearing a bright red shirt, too. It's, it's, you, we, we look at something like that and we think, oh, that's cute. That's adorable. And the, only, the worst that can happen is, is when we show them the, the picture on their prom night or, or, or on the day before their wedding, the kid will be embarrassed, right? That's the worst that can happen is being embarrassed and having a laugh down the road. 
looking at these men thinking they pulled one over on the Lord, it's pitiful. It's not, it's not laugh-worthy. They said Jesus defers to nobody. They said, Jesus, you are impartial. You don't stop and consider who you're talking to before you lay down the truth. Well, they're going to find that out right now, aren't they? Jesus says in verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Well, it looks like their cover's blown. Why are you testing me? And after publicly calling them out, He calls for a denarius. He calls for the Roman coin, as verse 15 tells us, to look at. And he doesn't need to look at it to to find out what's on it. He knows what's on it, but it's going to be a visual uh, object lesson. The Roman used this, this coin, this denarius, to pay the poll tax. It had to be paid in this Roman currency. And, beloved, no no self-respecting Jew, no pious Jew is going to have this Roman currency, the currency of the occupier, the currency of the enemy. And yet, I don't see them saying they have to go and uh, stop this conversation and go and, and find one. It just seems to be that they found one pretty easily. So maybe the Herodians had it. I don't know. And he asks them this question, verse 16. He said to them, Whose likeness? The word is icon. What does that sound like? Icon. Yeah, image, likeness. Whose image, whose likeness is on it and whose inscription is this? And you saw that. You saw that picture. That's not a cat. It's not a dog. It's not a moo cow. It's Caesar. Tiberius Caesar. And so they say to him, they say, simply say, it's Caesar's. And with that, he gives his response to their question. Verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render means to give back. To pay out. To pay, to pay out and to give because the giving is owed. It, it speaks of, of a debt that's owed. And to, to, withheld, to withhold the giving, to withhold the paying of the debt, to refrain from paying of the debt would be a, a more, certainly a moral, possibly even a legal infraction. There's a wrongness to not giving back or paying out that which is owed and that which is obligated. And I think about it. I know Chelsea works for the school. We got paid once a month. Anyone else, who, who, anyone else get paid once a month? Yeah, okay. You work hard all, all, all month. And you finally get your paycheck at the end of the month. And you look at that figure. And you, you, then you think of your employer. And you ask, was this a gift or was it owed? What if your supervisor came in and said, hey, you know, I just hope you really appreciate the fact that I paid you. It was a gift. It was, it was an expression of grace. I just felt like being nice, so here's your paycheck. What would you think? You're a loon. I, you, owe, you, would, you would think, maybe not say it, you would think you owed me this. This salary, this money, this paycheck was 
owed to me. It's not a gift. It's not grace. It is owed. You're obligated to give it. If I, if I borrowed your car, I, would be oblig- I wouldn't give it back to you as a gesture of goodwill. As a, as a gesture of grace or just because I'm a nice guy, I would give it back to you because it's your car. Rendering is giving back, to, giving back what is owed. So Jesus says, give back. Render to Caesar that which belongs, that which is owed, that which is obligated to Caesar. Now, in this narrative, in this story, what belongs to Caesar? The coin. The coin, the Roman denarius, that and amongst many other things given to the subjects of Rome came from Caesar. The money came from Caesar because when you have uh, an empire and you have buyers and sellers in the market of the empire, things don't work really well unless you have a standard of currency. And so Caesar gave them Roman currency so that the Roman market would work. The soldiers that came from Rome kept the peace, the Pax Romana. They kept the the borders uh, and relative peace and security of the nation. They came from Caesar's behest. The Roman roads, the first uh, p- uh, government-funded means of fast and safe transit, came from Caesar's desk. And, and the coin is just uh, a representative of all of that. In the, way, in the way that if you were to go overseas and you were to, you were to flash a, 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 a U.S. dollar, a George Washington, people would know, oh, you're an American, because that dollar represents the nation. The denarius represents everything that that Caesar has given to Rome. The coin came from Caesar. He gave it to you to use. It has his, his image on it. It has his inscription on it. You saw it. It came from him. It has his picture. It has his name. Give it back. Pay the tax. Render that which is Caesar to Caesar. And you must appreciate the appropriateness of these words in Mark's gospel because he's saying them, he's writing them to Christians who are living in Caesar's shadow in Rome. And Christians and the church must not be seen as insurrectionists. With these words, Jesus is giving his church the foundation for what Paul will say in Romans 13, 1-7. And what Peter will say in 1 Peter 2, 14 to 15, which if I can summarize it for for brevity's sake, they both say that there is no authority in any office on earth that God has not placed them there. And because God has placed them there, Christians are to be subject to them. They are to respect them. They are to pay taxes to them. And they're not to seek to, they're not to try to usurp to rebel, to overthrow the place and the function of government in secular society. Government is not inherently wrong. Government is inherently good and right. And as I said, it's important that this is in Mark's gospel because the Christians in Rome must not be seen as anarchists. 
Now, those again, those of you who are in the church history series, do you remember what one of the main arguments and accusations against the early church was? They're anarchists. They despise authority. They want people to rebel. They want insurrection. They want mutiny. Jesus says, give back. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But it doesn't end there, does it? And what? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God. You can supply the word render or give back. Give back. Render to God the things that are God's. Well, what are the things that are God's? What, what, is, what is Jesus saying that, that is owed to God and needs to be given back to God? Let's follow Jesus' line of thought here. Let's follow his reasoning. How did he determine the things that are Caesar's? Image. Image. He, he uh, pointed to the coin that bore the image of Caesar. The, the coin has Caesar's image, therefore it must be Caesar's. What can, you know, let's, let's put on our thinking caps here, you know. Let's deduce Let's investigate. What can we conclude rightfully belongs to God because it bears the image of God? People. Men, women, and children. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man, that's speaking for the whole human race, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And in case you missed it, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Beloved, this is not something taught way down in the subsection of subarticle C, subsection D, sub whatever in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. This is first chapter of Genesis. You and I and everyone conceived, everyone, every person bears the image of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, but they don't bear the image of God. They may be, there, there are a number of things in the created order that are beautiful and amazing. Many things. There are many things that are good to look at, good to appreciate, to, to, to even marvel at. But they don't have a mind, they don't have a will, they don't have a heart that can love. They can't have a relationship. They can't walk with you, they can't talk with you, they can't worship God, they can't appreciate God, they can't trust God, they certainly can't honor God. They don't have personhood. Man has personhood. Man bears the image of God so that man might know God, so that man might have a relationship with God, so that man might walk with God. So as one who bears the image of God, beloved, you belong to God. And all people rightfully belong to God. And standing here before Jesus were these men who wouldn't bat an eye in seeing people who 
are made in the image of God and have the and, and are members of the covenant of God, they wouldn't bat an eye in seeing these people, these precious people, living people, with hearts and minds and wills tangled in a godless religiosity, whether it's the whether it's the idol of self-righteousness of the Pharisees or the idol of syncretistic worldliness of the Herodians. Not only did they themselves refuse God, they saw to it that they refused other people from getting to God and being with God for the sake of their own profit. So the scheme was set up, the snare was laid down, and surprise, Jesus just walks casually right out of their trap. Mark concludes by saying that they were amazed. Here's, a, here's another hop hox legomena, meaning one word, one, one use word in the Bible. Uh, it's, it is a super, ultra, mega emphatic saying that their minds were continually being blown. They were amazed. They stayed up all night they practiced their parts. They laid the trap down just like they planned. And they still couldn't pull one over on Jesus. They failed again. I'm glad that's our Savior, aren't you? So what do we walk away with? Well, I think, I think the two chief applications are fairly clear. Give to Caesar... What belongs to Caesar? Romans thirteen seven. Render, here's the same word, give back. Render to all what is due. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. That first one, taxes. Christian, pay your taxes. I read a story of a guy... Who, uh, who had cheated on his taxes, and he was a, and then, then he got saved, and then he, uh, he, he his conscience was really bothering him, and so he he mailed a check to the IRS, which I, I, hear, I hear stands for Infernal Revenue Service, and he 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 enclosed a check and he said, "Dear sirs, please, enclosed is is uh, some money that I withheld from paying my taxes. My conscience is really bothering me. Please, you know, here you go." P.S. If my conscience continues to bother me by next week, I'll send the rest that I owe. Pay your taxes. And unless the government is calling you to do something that God forbids, or forbids or prohibits you from doing something that God calls you to do, those are two logical exceptions. Remember the the women uh, who wouldn't execute the baby boys in the beginning of Exodus. Remember the, the apostles, when they're standing before the Sanhedrin and I think Acts 5, we must obey God and not men when they're commanded not to preach. Unless the government is requiring you to do something God says no or telling you not to do that something that God calls us to do, unless those are happening, unless that's a reality, obey the government. Be subject to to the government governing authorities, whether it's the king or whether it's the governor, says Peter. Do your civil duty, submit to even, Paul even says, custom to whom custom. Even those dumb, 
uh, permit policies. Respect the law, honor those in authority, not because of their character, but because God has given them this office. Give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. What's the other obvious takeaway? And the the more important takeaway. Give to God. Render to God what is God's. Beloved, you. Give yourselves to God. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, your life, everything came from him. Kent Hughes says that you you are from God's mint. He made you. He fashioned you. With all of each of every one of your wonderful details and, and uh, specifics, he crafted you. Aren't you glad we aren't all made cookie cutter the same? I'm glad. Some of y'all are probably glad there's not another like me out there. This is my fear. Let, let, let me be real with you right now. Notice, notice that the Sanhedrin were amazed at him. My fear is that there will be many in this world who refuse to give to God what is God's. And on the final day, in the final judgment, they will, they will imitate, they will mimic this great amazement, this, this mind-blownness, because for all of their rebellion, for all of their stubbornness, for all of their hard-heartedness, for all of their supposed resilience, God is going to thwart them nonetheless. And beloved, I don't want that to be any one of you. Give to God what belongs to God. I do not want anybody here to marvel in that day that they thought they pulled one over on God. Give yourselves to God now. Let's pray. Lord, use this to speak to us. Move in hearts. Give faith where it is lacking. Give conviction where it is lacking. Help us in Christ to give ourselves to you. Thank you for Christ who gave himself himself for us. Amen. If I can get uh, Charlie, Justin, and... um, who was the third guy? Yeah, Ben. Uh, we're, it's the third Sunday of the month, our custom, honor custom to whom custom is due. Our custom is to do communion on the third Sunday of the month. This is a ceremony that the Lord himself has given us. We don't go through this ceremony. We don't go through this tradition for tradition's sake, but because he told us to do this. We do it because of what it reminds us of and because of what it proclaims. What does it remind us of? Namely, that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh so that the immortal, invincible God may experience death as the God-man. We remember that he died for us. We remember that Christ, our Savior, our substitute, interceded for us, offered himself for us when we could do nothing to save ourselves. 
What does communion proclaim? It proclaims the same thing, namely that he died for us, was crucified for us, and that is our hope. We proclaim that it was sufficient. We proclaim that it is our hope, our assurance, our confidence, and that through Jesus, God has made us right with him. Beloved, if you're not a believer, if you have unconfessed sin before God, if you have enmity with another brother in Christ or sister in Christ, with with somebody else who is made in God's image and bears his likeness, if you need to be reconciled to somebody else, do not take today. Do not judge the body incorrectly and in so doing drink judgment on yourself. And if you're not a believer, let the elements pass. But if you are and your conscience is clear, then by all means we exhort you to take this communion which reminds us and through which we proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pass elements.
The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, you say to do these things in remembrance of what you've done, and by taking it, we proclaim what you've done. We thank you for being the righteousness that we could never be and for giving us your righteousness and for bearing the sin that you never did, the sin that we had. Thank you for this great, merciful, gracious exchange that you have done for us so that we don't need to strive to be acceptable. We don't need to work to be acceptable because you are perfectly acceptable to the Father and that we're and because we are in you, we are acceptable to him and pleasing in his sight. Thank you for this intercessionary act that you have done for us by dying and rising again. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.